everybody. Welcome back to another edition of Bavarian Podcast Works. This is Chuck Smith, and I'm here to bring you the weekend warm-up, but we are going to break format. We have a special edition of the weekend warm-up podcast, and we're going to handle this roundtable style. And You might be asking, who the hell is this moron bringing in to give their takes on things? Because we finally want to hear intelligent takes and not him talking all the time. Well, I've got two important people on this podcast. First, we have BFW's own. I need no name. I need no name. How's it going? Uh, decently, I guess. I mean, it could be. <laughs> that is exactly the be response better. I expected. <laughs> it could be better. You yeah, know. could be a lot better. And the other voice you're going to hear today is a BFW alumni, the Daily Mail's own Jake Fenner. Jake, long time, no talk. How's it going? Uh, it's going okay. I kind of lost my voice the other day going to watch um, my local USL team get demolished by the revolution up in New England. But other than that, we uh, we are trying to recover in time to get our rage out for this episode. <laughs> and I'm sure there will be a lot of raging. So rather than just uh, piddle around with this, let's get right to it. The format of this roundtable is going to be assessing where things are at Bayern Munich, what's gone wrong, what possibly could go right. Not much. I think we're all on that page. Uh, so let's get to it. We're going to start with the executives. And it has been a tumultuous time for people like Brazo, Oliver Kahn, Herbert Heiner. Everyone is under fire. I need no name. I think we can all agree that Kahn has done a very good job in making the club money. In fact, you could argue he didn't have to do much. He just had to stay out of the way of that. But in terms of actually running the football club from a sporting perspective, I think it's left a lot to be desired. What do you think is going on with the executives right now? How much trouble are they in? Well, they, you can't really describe it as anything but a massive crisis right now. And, well, you can see how much they are terrified because they keep – breaking the, what should I say, the PR facade that has covered Bayern Munich since the sacking of Julian Nagelsmann. And they've started to go off on everyone, go off on the media, go off on the players, go off on basically whoever they can to make it seem like their decisions were justified and keep the heat off them. So when they start doing that, you can tell that things are starting to really unravel in the back because they can feel the heat. Khan is probably the first guy on the chopping block right now, but is he or should he be the first guy to go or is he just going to be a scapegoat? That's my main question because it's really unclear who does what and how it gets done in the backroom. Well, the backroom negotiations and dealings at Bayern Munich, it's just not very clear who does what. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think that there is a lot that as fans and as people on the outside, we don't know about. Now, Jake, you've got that great outside perspective because you're no longer living this Bayern Munich life day to day like I need no name and myself are. But you're still very engaged, still following, still very involved. What do you think's going on? What, where did this all go wrong this season with the executives at Bayern Munich? Uh, <laughs> um. I just want to start by saying that the idea of sacking Nagelsmann made absolutely zero sense. It didn't yeah, make yeah. sense from a sporting perspective. It didn't make sense from 
a management perspective, right? Like, let's consider this outside of the world of sports. Let's just consider it in the world of like business, right? If you're a boss at a company, there's a big meeting that you have coming up, the biggest meeting you could possibly have. It's a sales meeting that your company could need to go to new heights, blah, 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 whatever. You don't fire the guy that's been working on the project for the last seven months, two weeks before the meeting happens. Even if you may not love the way his direction for the long-term future may be going, he is the person that best knows your team and he knows what the plan is and he's been spending most time possible developing the plan. So why would you fire him before this? And it's almost just hubris in a way. Right. The statements that came out in the immediate aftermath of hiring Tuchel. Oh, we hired Thomas Tuchel because we believe that the treble is still on. Um, (laughs) Last I checked, the treble is not on. Right. He's got more. He's got the same amount of losses in seven games that Julian Nagelsmann had in his entire like Bayern tenure this year so far. Uh this year, that maybe not his entire Bayern tenure, but um, you know, immediately crashed out of the DFB Pokal, uh, off of the very late penalty winner, immediately crashed out of the Champions League with a squad that didn't really look that great at times. And here we are, we're up, we're actually in a worse position up against Dortmund than we were when Nagelsmann got fired. Um, I think that this just screams complacency from the board. It screams people trying things just for the sake of trying them. And if your defense to me is that, oh, we had to hire Thomas Tuchel because we wanted to move on from Nagelsmann in any way, and uh, we wanted to make sure that Tuchel was our man for the job... You know, there's this thing uh, called, like, a delayed contract, right? You could sign Tuchel for next season without firing Nagelsmann now. Like, that, that is in the realm of possibility. That is humanly possible. It's been done before. Um, and so the fact that they failed to capitalize on something like that, that they failed to do something like that, and then they almost seem to just completely deflect responsibility from anybody but themselves is just an absolute like management failure at the highest order. So yeah, yeah it, absolutely. It, it's just embarrassing. It, it it's is. not some it's not something that Bayern is is want to do. It's 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 not typical of Bayern's traditional um business acumen to to put it in in a certain way right and the change was shocking to everyone the timing of it was extremely questionable and in the end it proved to be fatal to this season as we saw two competitions go right down the drain i need no name you were not a huge nogglesman fan uh i think you criticized him maybe as much as anyone but i think at, at the stage of the season where he was fired I, I know I felt like he was pushing the right buttons. I, I don't think you were on that same page, but I think you definitely had a lot of takes at the time that this was a huge risk. 
And despite the fact that, you know, Tuchel might have been a long-term target for Bayern Munich and maybe some things weren't necessarily going the way they wanted with Nagelsmann, it was destined to fail. And I think now we're seeing all the worst of what could have happened. At the moment where Nagelsmann was let go, what was your immediate reaction to the hiring of Tuchel and how you thought this would all work out? Because in my mind, it has not went anywhere near the best case scenario. Well, at the time, I was just thinking this could go either way, really. And that's kind of a cop-out answer, I understand. But like I saw the potential positives, the idea that Tuchel would maybe go back to basics, make us play a little bit better. When Nagelsmann was clearly dragging the team down with his constant experimentation in every way, shape, and form. But that being said, that's not what happened, right? Tuko, he he has the same issues as Nagelsmann really so far. He experiments too much. He doesn't keep it simple. Some of his lineup selections and choices are just baffling. Mm-hmm. Even if you give him the benefit out of the doubt and say that yeah he's only been around for a few weeks his best game was when he was here for just a few days okay that was the one game where he seemed to get every choice right and since then he has been consistently getting it wrong and because of that we suffered on the pitch I don't think it's necessarily just a case of the team collapsing because Nagelsmann was fired and that's kind of got them mentally unsettled it's not just that. I think this is a lot of this can be boiled down to the coach not making the right choices. And despite that, I think Tuchel would have had a better chance if Chupamoting hadn't gotten injured. You know? Yeah. If he hadn't gotten injured, that would have been like, it would have kept us in the running for all of these competitions. And like playing with Chupa Moting not at 100%, you could tell that it was not good for us, even when he was on the pitch. Right. And that's why I kind of put this more on a structural problem at Bayern Munich because this is the issue here is not that Chupa Moting got injured or that Nagelsmann was fired or that Tuchel is the wrong choice. It's going back all the way to when Robert Lewandowski was let go and we decided to get Sadio Mane yeah. in the summer. Now, why why was that decision made? It's because the board talked to Nagelsmann and he assured them that he would be able, and in fact, he was eager to transition Bayern Munich to a strikerless setup and make us play that way. Something similar to what we saw at RB Leipzig, for, for example. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, the board being who they are, normally I would have expected them to say no because they have said no before. And that is kind of in the history of Bayern Munich. We don't just say yes to whatever um, a coach wants or desires. We normally say, no, actually, this is how we tend to do things. You're going to have to adjust your plans a little. We didn't do that with Nagelsmann, right? That's why, that is the reason why we are in this predicament right now. We have a squad here that is not really fit for any manager that is not Nagelsmann himself. And Nagelsmann himself, his problem was that he got sacked because he was quite clearly unable to identify the players and the talent that he wanted for his squad that he could also use. Look at how many of the players that he specifically asked for that never ended up 
becoming an important part of his setup, like Zabitzer, uh, Mane, and now Cancelo. The board should have stepped in. They should have said, no, this is not the way we're going to play. No, this is not what we are going to do. And by not doing that, and then also going back and deciding to sack Nagelsmann, maybe on a whim that was probably a little bit too hasty, but it had been a long time coming because it's not like Nagelsmann has been a shining beacon of consistency all season. They took a gamble, but the right, but in hindsight, maybe the right, um, what should I say? The right pieces weren't there for the gamble to pay off. Maybe if Chupo had been fit, they still could have seen some payoff from it, but otherwise, like, it just didn't work out. And I'm still in kind of two minds, but I still think that Nagelsmann was going to get fired. It's just a question of when. Yeah, and that, that definitely could have been the case. One of the key things I thought you brought up were the personnel decisions. You go back to Mane. In my mind, it was a panic buy. When they knew they were going to lose Robert Lewandowski, they went out and tried to get a big name. I kind of think in that respect that Nagelsmann got put in this spot where, you know, he was given the option. Can you make this work? Well, sure. What the hell other option did he have? But you're you're right that if he went as far as to go to bat and say he could he could do that, he could make it work with Mane, it was a mistake. And it was, in my mind, never going to work. I didn't like the Mane acquisition from the beginning, and it didn't have anything to do with his talent. With Jake, when, with you in your current job and you're following the world of transfers and personnel decisions, you had to be scratching your head a lot over the course of the last year. If you think about it and a lot of the points that I need no name made, I mean, this team was being built around Nagelsmann and how his vision of the team was going to work. Now you have this weird transition with Thomas Tuchel where he's operating with some of Nagelsmann's players He's going to be still be getting Nagelsmann's players. I mean, Conrad Limer, I don't think Tuchel wants anything to do with him, but now he's stuck with him. Uh, I, I, what's your perspective as, as you watch this year play out and, and these personnel moves that were made? How much heat should Brazo be under? Because he, he is ultimately the man pushing the button to get these deals done. You're taming me up here, Chuck, aren't you? <laughs> you want me to get in trouble, don't you? <laughs> I figured Here's... it would be a hot topic. <laughs> so, Hassan Salihamidzic, where do I begin? Um, just to make it clear from the start, um, I am of this mind. If Oliver Kahn goes, Hassan Salihamidzic has to go as well. Just for the basic idea of Brazo's been around longer than Oliver Kahn has. He's just been in the organization, in the position to make personnel decisions and bring people into the team longer than Khan has taken over for Kahn's Womaniga. Um, so I think for as much as we can question the signing of Sadio Mane since the summer, I think it's less of bringing in Mane and more of how Mane has been deployed. Because when I heard the Mane signing, my first thought was, oh, great. We have a brand new winger that can come in and either play the left or the right. That was my first thought. Yeah, I think a lot and of people thought saw, that way. 
then when I saw what Julian Nagelsmann rolled out um, when I was in Washington, D.C. against D.C. United in person, I thought that was interesting. I thought that it looked like a pretty good shout that it was something that I'd been saying for years. Bayern needed to modernize their game. They needed to stop the, oh, we're going to hoof the ball into the box and cross it into somebody to try and get goals, right? Nagelsmann, I took what he was saying and I believed in it because, you know, I also thought that Bayern needed, like, like I said, I thought Bayern needed to modernize their game. We needed to move on from that old traditional structure that we had had back when Bayern had two strikers starting up top instead of just one. Um, But by the time the World Cup break rolled around, you could not tell me that what Bayern was putting out on the field in terms of personnel made sense, right? We can sit here and we can say, oh, Sadio Mane hasn't been good enough as a striker. Oh, you know, there have been injuries to Eric Maxim Chupomotin, right? I think we're looking at the question wrong. The question we should be looking at is, why did we believe that it was okay to replace Robert Lewandowski with absolutely nobody who (laughs) could play striker the same way or in a similar way that Robert Lewandowski could, right? Because with every ounce of respect to Eric Maxim Chupomoting, he was a guy that got brought in because John Dillon wrote a funny post one day <laughs> saying that he should be brought in, and then the next day he got brought in, right? All respect to Sadio Mane, he has not played center forward for a while. That was not what he was playing most of the time at Liverpool. And when he came here to ask him to expect him transition to that role might have been a little bit hasty, to say the least, right? Both of those things can be true, right? We can say that Mane got in hasty. We can say that EMCM is probably not a starting caliber striker for a world-class team on the same level as Bayern Munich because he's proven that in his statistics, right? No offense to him. Like I've said, I just feel bad for, I feel bad for him because I feel like he looks like he's been put in a position to fail, right? Because he's being played in the same role as Lewandowski for Lewandowski minutes in relative comparison to last year. And that's not fair on him, but what's even more not fair is that we i think we all as bayern fans knew this by the world cup break and chuck i want you to dig deep (laughs) i want you to do some big thinking for me okay with this knowledge in hand how many strikers did bayern munich sign in the winter that could help them solve this problem uh wow i think it was Zero. (laughs) None. No one at all. So we can say, oh, Nagelsmann's tactics were wrong. We can say, oh, the players haven't been great. What I would counter with is that if we were serious at all 
about winning this season, we would have signed a striker. We would have signed a much better striker. Now, we can debate which that striker would be. We can debate whether or not it should have been, you know, someone young like Randall Kola Mawani, who was forced, that, that, that was handed out to us by Eintracht Frankfurt on a silver platter before the World Cup even started for, like, what, 12? I want to say it was 12. I thought I saw the rumor was that it was 12 million euros, and we said, no, thank you. And now if we want to get him in the summer, we'll have to pay at least 30, right? I we think it's going to be a lot more than that. I think at least, you're, at think least you're 30. At nine That's a low number. Yeah. That's a low number. But um, you could have got in full Krug. Now, Werder Bremen probably wouldn't have sold him, but you could have at least gone after him. There are more than enough strikers that you could have tried to go and get on loan, right? You could have tried to go get Julian Alvarez on loan after his fantastic World Cup with Argentina because Lord knows that kid needs to be starting somewhere. And the answer to his long-term success is not continuously being benched behind Erling Holland, But with this knowledge, with a whole World Cup's worth of fantastic striker play, Hassan Salihamidzic couldn't get anybody to come to Bayern Munich. And that's a problem. Well, Jake, it's I think you're leaving out that problem. he decided to add another outside back to the equation in Jao Cancelo, who the team absolutely didn't need. So Not <laughs> even, at all. Even with Nusar Mizrahi being uh, banged up at that point, if there was one position aside of wing that Bayern Munich had enough depth in, I would say it was the outside back position. One final thought on the executives. I have uh, speculated about this a little bit. Uh, I often wonder what the communication is like when Brazo was making these transfer deals. And we've always talked about his PowerPoints, how impactful they are, and they've become a running joke. But just to isolate one scenario, with Ryan Gravenberg's continued, continued complaining about playing time, it, it's become obvious he was made some promises that obviously weren't going to be fulfilled. Uh, he's now had two coaches at Bayern Munich. They have both opted not to play him. At some point, the blame is yes on Ryan Gravenberg. He's not good enough, but he seems to really be intent that there was something promised to him, that there was something told that would imply he was going to play a lot. Now, I often wonder how much that could damage what Bayern Munich does on the open market. If there are rumors of things being promised or or contractual obligations not being met, I think there are there could be some fallout from that. So to to really wrap up this executive part of our roundtable here, I think that there are a lot of questions right now with Khan, with Heiner, with Brazo, with Marco Nepp, whether it's talent evaluation, whether it's their decision making when things get tough. There are a lot of issues, and I, I don't know if there will be upheaval in the executive boardroom, but I think it's being considered. And with the way Uli Honus has been kind of uh, all of a sudden back on the scene at Strasse, it's definitely something for everybody to keep an eye on. Uh, we're going to take a short break, and then we'll be back to take a look at the coaches, how they're performing since Thomas Tuchel took over, and then the roster and really what might be next for a lot of these players. We'll be right back. 
Hey, welcome back. This is Chuck Smith. Of course, I'm joined by I Need No Name and Jake Fenner for this edition of the Weekend Warm-Up Podcast. We're going to jump right back into this. We're going to look at the coach, Thomas Tuchel. I Need No Name, I know you've got a lot of takes on Tuchel. What do you think about him moving forward? In my mind, he has not really given fans a lot of confidence. As you touched on in the previous segment, there have been a lot of issues in terms of squad selection, some of his decisions that he's made. He hasn't really settled in on a formation. I mean, we've seen him rely on the 4-2-3-1, but he's kind of toyed around with the back three a little bit. What are your initial impressions of Tuchel? And do you think he's going to make it at Bayern Munich? Because right now, I think it's a little bit questionable. Well, I didn't think he was going to make it at Bayern Munich, even if he won the treble <laughs> this season. Like, Tuchel is not a long-term guy at any right. club, right? He always brings, he's guaranteed to bring some degree of success, right? But beyond that, he does not exactly, he's not the kind of guy you build around. And that was the modus operandi of the board before signing him. They were going to build some kind of dynasty around Nagelsmann. They wanted him to be a Sir Alex type of guy. So this represents, as long as they know what they're doing, or at least they think they know what they're doing, because at this point, I'm not sure. But at least they acknowledge that Tuchel is not going to be the guy who's going to, I don't know, get them what? He's going to keep them in... How do I describe this? Basically, he's not going to be a guy who's going to be around in... 2025 right mm -hmm. but despite that like even if you just look at what he's doing right now on the short term i am not impressed and mainly that comes down to how he's using thomas muller I, I i keep going back to this right it keeps becoming an issue for every single buying coach like how they use thomas muller or how they decide that they're going to be using thomas muller but it's important, okay, because it tells you how well that particular coach understands the squad and the players that he has at his disposal. Tuchel, by benching Thomas Muller in both games versus Manchester City, he showed that he doesn't fundamentally understand what makes Bayern Munich tick. He may say in his interviews that, yes, Thomas Muller is still a very important player for us, but we still decided, etc., etc., etc. He can rationalize it all he wants. But when he makes those decisions, that means that he just doesn't get it fundamentally. He doesn't see what Muller brings to the side, which we have all seen over and over and over again. And this bleeds into all his other selection issues that, you know, for example, why does Nusair Matsrawi not play? Why didn't Matitel not play? All those kinds of things. Those are all secondary to the big, big question, which is that does he get the squad that he has at his disposal. And it's quite clear that he doesn't. And because of that, I think that he's going to be gone, if not in the summer, then by October of next year. That's, that's Sorry, pretty... this year, this season. <laughs> that's pretty bold. Now, when you look at Tugel and those decisions that he made, obviously he benched Thomas Muller for Jamal Musiala. And as we've all seen, that there has been something off with Musiala since the World Cup, whether it's his confidence, whether he's physically beat up and just has not been able to to handle the 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 physical beating that you take playing that number 10 role. When you see that, there's this fine balance of trying to get Musiala back on track, trying to develop your next big star, and then having Thomas Muller here, in my mind, being the better option. 
I, I, I can see why Tuchel struggled with that, but ultimately he made the wrong call. I mean, what would you have done in that situation if you would have wanted to try and play Thomas Muller, but also have Jamal Musiala trying to work out of his funk in the lineup at the same time? Well, it's not, it's easy, right? Just put him on the wing because look, this is how Jamal Musiala broke through. And I don't understand why in recent weeks, people have just somehow forgotten that Musiala, the way he made it into a treble winning Bayern Munich side, a side that still had players that were like fresh of winning the treble. Muziala muscled his way into that lineup. How? By playing on the wing. Right. So I don't understand how it's gotten, like how the narrative has spread that Muziala must play attacking midfielder. He's not, frankly, he's not that good at it, honestly. He's decent, in my opinion, but like, in the attacking midfield position, Muziala does not get the space to dribble as much as he'd like. You know, he doesn't get the chances to do overlaps with, say, for example, Alfonso Davies or the other fullback, whoever it might be, Nusser, Matsuri, Joao Cancelo, whoever. Okay, once you deprive his game of that, everything gets a little bit slower. He has a little bit less space to work with. He has a little bit less time on the ball. And these are the things that his game requires he needs those things to flourish as a player instead of that what we've gotten from our last two coaches is this weird shoehorn situation where a he's forced to compete with thomas muller on a weekly basis which cannot be good for him because muller is an experienced campaigner knows exactly what to do in these kinds of situations and b he's forced to play in a position that is a lot more challenging to play for a team at Bayern Munich's level than might be at some other teams. So because of that, and on top of that, you know, all the stress of the World Cup with Germany and him not being able to perform to his best in those games, it's really making him regress as a player overall. And honestly, you know, I wonder if both Nagelsmann and Tuchel were given a directive from the top asking them to make sure Muziala only plays in the middle, you know? Yeah, I, I honestly feel like I honestly feel like that's the case. Because like the evidence kind of points to it. There is no reason for Muziala to be glued to the center of the pitch. We could easily have him, especially when Gnabry, Mane, Sane, come on, all of them have such erratic performances. There's no reason for them to be you know, not benched in favor of someone like Muziala, who's shown so many times that he can do it, an amazing job on the wing. Right. So I just feel like this is another one of those, you know, behind the scenes power plays that we are not privy to as fans, but like it's still having an effect on the team and on the system. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Jake, you've, you've been... You know, obviously, with your some of your colleagues at the Daily Mail, they they got to live through Thomas Tuchel's final days at Chelsea. I wanted to get your thoughts on your first impression of what he's been doing as as the boss at Bayern Munich, and really what your long term outlook was for him, given his proclivity for really alienating players, creating division in locker rooms. I mean, he might be a brilliant footballing mind, but I think we've seen a couple examples in the past where he simply can't coexist for players for that long. And to me, that's one of the the primary causes of concern I have with his hiring. So what do you think about that? What do you think about how he's done so far and where you think he's pointing this team toward going? 
I think if we want to talk about players, we should just look at Christian Pulisic. From his time in Dortmund, when Tuchel was in charge, Tuchel gave Christian Pulisic his first starts. He watched Christian Pulisic develop as a player, develop as a youngster, grow, get better. And then for some reason, towards the end of their Dortmund tenure, they weren't exactly getting along. They weren't exactly seeing eye to eye. Pulisic somewhat struggled. Maybe not to the point where it might have shown up on the goal sheet, but you could see in his performances he was getting frustrated. And then he went off to Chelsea. And then towards the end of Tuchel's time at Chelsea, Pulisic was just getting benched and people were just like screaming their head off, at least in the U.S. Maybe in England they were like, oh, we don't need this fucking yank. Mm-hmm. Um, but he wasn't getting starting time. He wasn't getting starting time and Chelsea was not doing well. And it, it, it just baffled my mind that a coach could seem to just hold that kind of like grudge or contempt for a player. When we first got linked with Thomas Tuchel, I want to say around the time that we hired Kovac, I think a lot of us were saying similar things we were saying now. He's often temperamental with players. He seems to not like when there is authority that is not his own authority in a locker room. He is apt occasionally to tinkering sometimes until he finds something that works and he doesn't stay at places long, right? Now, there may be so many reasons why that's the case. It's different at each club, but... The fact of the matter is, that's the track record that he's brought in with him. And it's not necessarily unwarranted. And so, when I saw that we had sacked Nagelsmann, I had only had like just seen the first rumor of like, oh, I think Byron's going to move on like 20 minutes before the sacking actually happened. The speed of everything caught me by complete surprise. And then the speed into which they said, yes, our answer is going to be Thomas Tuchel. Is like, it it almost doesn't seem correct. Like, it doesn't seem right, the speed in which everything developed. Um, and then we can we can also, like, chalk this up to a failure of, the board in thinking that they were going to win the treble with a coach that they brought in while so many players were out on international break and say, yeah, we're going to get a system together, a new system with a coach who loves implementing a new system when he gets in every single time. And we're going to be okay. And we're still going to win the treble. Um, in my mind, that was one of the most things. baffling parts of this. Like, how did they think it was ever going to work and result in a treble? And and that it, was the impetus for the move, right? They said, we think this will help us win a treble or at least put us in a position to. And it, it was the furthest thing from anyone else's mind. Like, it was that small group of people had this idea 
that was so ludicrous and they thought it would work. I, I just, I, from a, even a, a personal dynamic well, perspective, it was never going to work. But it did work once, remember? It was. Yeah. It, that well, was a different time, a different team. And and I think at like that point, ago. yeah. And I think at that point, when, when you made that move at that time, there was a, a, a true, I think, resentment toward the former coach. I don't think at this period that Nogglesman and, and on the recent, you know, stories that we've seen come out from build, like the players weren't on board with getting rid of Nogglesman and they're frankly sick of being made the scapegoat for it. I think under Nico Kovac, if we want to look at that scenario, when the team transferred <laughs> from Kovac to flick, absolutely. Kovac at that point had alienated so many players, whether it was his lukewarm water at practice, hashtag Miami nights or so many other things. Nogglesman, while I don't think everyone thoroughly liked him, especially not Lewandowski, I don't think he this particular group of players were were so like mad at him. And like and I just I to me, I never understood the move to to go to Tuchel at this time. If they wanted to go after the season, fine, but I never got that. I I think the real reason why people didn't like Kovac is they must have really, really hated that performance of 99 Luft Balloons. But <laughs> um, I think that right there's a weird power dynamic in the locker room with Nagelsmann, right? Because he's younger than a bunch of players, right? That's like the one thing that we kept hearing. Oh, like it's a weird dynamic because he's younger than Manuel Neuer and he needs people to respect him. It's like, you know, I've I've worked in a lot of different professions in a lot of different places. I've seen people that are younger than other workers that can command their respective people. And I think for the most part, unless there's a lot of evidence otherwise that I haven't seen, that Nagelsmann generally had the respect of the players. And then he got pushed out for some random reason. Now I'm going to drop this take. I think it's hot. But I think it's correct. If Bayern doesn't win a title this season, I don't think you can put any of the blame on Nagelsmann. It's a weird take. It's a hot take. But here's why I say it. Because when you're a coach and you're in a title fight, because that's what Bayern well and truly was in the middle of a title fight, while they were trying to balance a Bokal schedule, while they were also trying to balance a Champions League schedule. When you fire him and they lose, you can't like exactly say that it's all his fault. I point to the U.S. men's national team's 2018 World Cup qualifying campaign, right? When they sacked, um, fuck, I haven't, oh, Jurgen right? Klinsmann. Jurgen Klinsmann. Um, when they sacked Jurgen Klinsmann, right. um, and everybody was happy, right? Mm -hmm. And then they brought in Bruce Arena and they're like, okay, now, now it's on you, right? Like Jurgen, Jurgen had a bad loss at home. And then Bruce lost two nil to Costa Rica at home. And then it was like, okay, like everything from this point is on you. You have two games. I want to say it was a game against Panama and then a game away to Trinidad and Tobago. And you need a win and a draw out of both of them. It is on you now. It, it can't just entirely be on Jurgen Klinsmann. 
right? And then, obviously, they won that game against Panama, and then they lost the game to Trinidad, and they got knocked out of the World Cup. So with this, right, we can't blame the Pokal loss on Nagelsmann because they were undefeated in the Pokal. We can't blame the Champions League loss on Nagelsmann because Nagelsmann didn't even draw in the Champions League, right? Who lost the first games of this season for Bayern in the Champions League was Thomas Tuchel, right? Tuchel has the exact, like I mentioned before, Tuchel has the exact same amount of losses in the Bundesliga as Julian Nagelsmann does, right? And he also lost them within his first seven games in charge. He also lost them towards the tail end of the season and allowed, you know, like Dortmund to go ahead. And even after he built that advantage, after beating Dortmund, he allowed them to catch up and eventually overtake him to the point where now Dortmund is in the driver's seat, right? Julian Nagelsmann didn't do that. It was not oh, on actually, Julian Nagelsmann that he did that. Well, yes, uh, he at the, at the time he was behind. But like at that point, Bayern and Dortmund hadn't played each other. That game was still to be had. And I think if Nagelsmann was coaching that game, I think that Nagelsmann would have been fine. So, yes, he was behind when he got sacked. But it was for every game after that Dortmund game. For every game after that Dortmund game, I think that you can go ahead and say those are squarely on Tuchel. And I agree with I Need No Names uh, prognosis that... Um, that Tuchel will be gone, if not by the summer, if by next fall. <laughs> I'm of the mind that, you know, at the end of the season, there needs to be a big house cleaning, not only in the squad, but also at the executive level. And then you can fire the coach as well. In my opinion, right, Julian Nagelsmann is still technically an employee of FC Bayern Munich. I think we can go ahead and have our, if you'll recall, our Edin Terzic, Marco Rosa moment, where we say to ourselves, okay, we got a little too in over our heads. We will have Nagelsmann come in with some restrictions We'll get him some players and say, we want you to kind of simplify your system a little bit, but we'll give you another shot at it with new executives and a new board and some new blood in the squad that the board will sell off and then use those sales to buy in some more people. Because I think it was something that you had said on either if not the last podcast chuck but one of the podcasts before one of the uh one of the weekend warm-ups from before when you were talking about something to the effect of like oh um like con came in to like be a brand first uh, executive right. as opposed to a football first executive where he was driving the team from being a football first team to a brand first team. What's the brand? The brand is Mia San Mia. The brand is being like dominant on the field. The brand is, you know, 
sticking to morals and principles. The brand is not being the club that fires coaches mid-season. The brand is not flipping so many coaches in such amount of time. Like, what? I can't even put an exact number on the number of coaches, either interim or full-time, that Byron has had in the last five seasons. I don't think I think I could have ever been able to say that as a fan of the club beforehand, right? So I just, I don't know how for the rest of this season, if Byron fails to win anything, I don't know how you can put, I'm not going to say any blame because you can put some blame on Nagelsmann. But I don't know how anybody could sit there and say that a majority of the blame goes to Nagelsmann. I can't even sit here and say someone hear someone that says half of the blame goes to Julian Nagelsmann. Yeah, maybe I, even I, a third. Like it, it's it's so beyond him at this point, and it just it 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 just all seems like an abject failure. Yeah, and that's I, not something this club is used to or should be doing. Yeah, I think that you know the, the the blame definitely starts at the top and then trickles down from there. And and through two segments, we've now nuked the executives and the coaching staff. So I think that the Byron board is going to have to probably just hire us to to fix things at this point. But uh, I did want to transition over to the roster, and I want to do this in a format where uh, I'm going to lay something out to you guys, and I want some quick hitter type takes on some of the players on the roster. And what you think the outlook for them is in the future. And I, I want to start with a player in particular who has drawn the ire of many fans over the last month or so, maybe more than at any point in his tenure. And that's Leon Goretzka. Uh, Goretzka has been the box to box threat since Hansi Flick took over. I think that's when he really first started to settle in at Bayern Munich and, and really establish himself. We had seen a lot of good things from him at Chalka. We had seen some good things, the German national team from him. But once he got the opportunity to really play under Hansi Flick, he settled in and has become a consistent starter. Uh, this season, more than any other, though, I think he's come under the microscope because Joshua Kimmich has changed his game. No longer is Kimmich accepting that role as the deep-sitting number six who can help orchestrate the game. Kimmich also, in my mind, wants to push up and be more of that number eight, which will put Leon Goretzka on some very tenuous footing. Uh, when you factor in that Conrad Limer will be joining the club during the summer, I don't know if there's a place for Goretzka moving forward. I need no name. What do you think about Goretzka, what his outlook is? I'm honestly not that concerned about Goretzka. He's, <laughs> you know, he's honestly had, he's had these, you know, periods where his form turns down, but he usually comes back from that. Yeah. Right. So right now, I think the major concern is not really Goretzka or any particular player. Well, there are a few players who are concerned, but those guys have been a concern for a while. But my major concern is how Goretzka or the other players are used. Because, for example, there is now talk that Kimmich is going to be moved to a more box-to-box role. Mm-hmm. And... By doing that, we need want a new DM, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. How does that make any sense, right? right. First of all, where are we going to get a DM as good as Joshua Kimmich is at DM? I know a lot of people say that he is not a true DM, but that's just because he doesn't play like a true DM. I agree. Normally, he doesn't normally he doesn't play that way, but he's more than capable of it, mm-hmm. right? 
he's like it's just that it feels like Kimmich is accommodated so much at this club. Like he gets to play where he wants. He gets to yeah. move from right back into midfield. He gets to move from defensive midfield into a more box-to-box role. This, that, all that stuff. He gets to make demands about the armband and all that kind of thing. Okay. And it just figures into our squad planning so poorly because, for example, look at what's going to happen with Goretzka now. If we decide that we want a new DM, that's going to be a massive transfer fee if it's a established player. If it's not then I don't know what we're doing because, look, you're not going to find another player from a random team and then develop him into a buying quality DM. That's not going to happen. So what's going to happen is that we either get someone on a massive transfer fee and or a massive salary or both. And then Leon Goretzka, who has a contract here until 2027 or 8 or something like that, he recently extended his contract for five years. So... He's going to be here for a long time and he's near the top of the wage bill. Right. Mm-hmm. What is going to happen to him? Is he, are you going to sideline him and then use Kimmich in his position? Does that make any sense? Why, why wouldn't you as the coach instead just say, Joshua, you need to, you know, defend. You just need to be in front of the center backs and defend like you are supposed to. And Kimmich, this guy, when he first came to Bayern, he used to be the kind of guy that would do all the dirty work. He would do whatever the coach asked from him, right? And he doesn't feel like that guy anymore. More recently, he feels like the guy who makes demands. He says he wants to play every single game. He wants to play every single minute. He wants to play further up the pitch. He wants to take free kicks. He wants to take set pieces. All of these things come together to make me wonder if Kimmich is maybe potentially the source of a lot of issues we have with squad planning. You look at some of the players that are his friends in the dressing room, for example, you know, Serge Gnabry, they've been underperforming for a very long time, but somehow or the other, they keep getting a very long leash to keep playing, to keep, how should I say, to keep getting chances in the starting right. 11, while other players who maybe potentially threaten Kimmich's leadership in the team someone like for example Thomas Muller um keeps having to prove himself over and over and over again even though the performance metrics don't merit that kind of scrutiny so it's just like again this borders into conspiracy theory but it's just That's one of those things that here. you yeah yeah i know it's just <laughs> one of those things that if you watch the team for long enough you start seeing all the signs, right? And then at that point, you can't really ignore it. So I just want to ask, like, can we afford to keep doing this? Can we just afford to keep saying, yeah, this is what we need to change things around, but this is what we need to do? Because I I don't think that's the way forward. I think that we have a squad here, minus striker, minus a world-class striker, that can easily go out and win the Champions League next season. You know, just spend that money on a world-class striker. Don't touch the midfield too much. Sell a few wingers and buy that striker and then you're done. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think Kimmich is one of these guys who he always wants what he doesn't have. He he went from being arguably one of the top right backs in the world to being one of the best defensive midfielders in the world. Now he wants to be an eight. And that's coming coming at the expense of the team in my mind. I think he's wearing a bit of a Teflon suit at the club these days, and he should probably be a little bit more 
criticized than he has been for some of this type of behavior. I, I think that you made a great point in saying that Kimmich's desires are now coming at the expense of the team. And if, and you can look back at BFW where we did an entire article at one point saying you could have a great starting 11 of just Kimmich. You could play him at every position. He's that good. And now we're getting to the point where he maybe has been reading too much about how good he is and, and has these type of opinions of himself. Now, Jake, I need no name brought up a, a very interesting player in Serge Gnabry who has been inconsistent during his time, to say the least, at Bayern Munich. But he's been a player who has given us some really dazzling moments. At the same time, he is under the microscope right now and is one of the players that has been rumored to be on this on the chopping block. What do you think about Gnabry's prospects moving forward? Um, I think that for Serge Gnabry, I think that it is about time for a new challenge mm -hmm. for him. And I don't say that because of fashion week. I think that's, I think that's, a dumb reason right. to want to move on from a player. No, if you want to move on from Serge Gnabry, you look at his performance on the field. You could argue that last season, he didn't really have that great of a season, and he hasn't really improved from there. Um, I think that just in general, for everybody all around, it might serve both Gnabry and the club the best if he moved on. Now, I, I'm i also just generally upset at the state of the wingers outside of Kingsley Coman. Right. In my mind, if I was a manager at a club, I would put nearly everybody, and, and we're going on this assumption because we we've been seeing Musiala playing nothing but central attacking midfielder, but I'm of the mind that almost every single winger in this club, except for Kingsley Coman can get sold this summer. And I think that you'd be dumb to not want to listen to reasonable offers. But if you were to sell any winger, I think, the person that would best benefit from a new environment would be Serge Gnabry. Yeah, I agree on that. And, and we're nearing the end of this show, but I did want to fire some more names off to you guys. And I just want to, I guess, uh, a simple stay or go and a little, little quick sentence of rationale. Sadio Mane, uh, I think he's got to go. I think that bridge is burnt. I think slapping Sané, not really fitting in. That's That's been a big detriment to his future here. I would sell him. I need no name. What do you think about Mane? He's got to go. Him and Gnabry. They are my first choice to leave. I think Sané should also go simply because I don't think that Sané is getting any better. He is decent and he has shown in the first half of the season what he can do. Mm -hmm. But like it's just not enough and he's one of the few players i think that we could get a decent amount for if we sold him so that's my rationale so Mane, ganabri and sane yeah i agree with sane I, I mean i don't think he'll go but i do think 
he's one of the players that could draw a good sum. He probably would benefit from a change of scenery in some ways. After all of the hype and the hoopla that surrounded that potential transfer, and then when they finally got him, it just hasn't quite lived up to that hype. Now, I think he's been good, but it, it has not been, I think, what everyone thought it would be. Jake, when you look at Joao Cancelo and that loan, there was a lot of speculation that Byron might buy him. I don't see any need for him. I think he alienated himself with his behavior after the Dortmund match, and I know I, I harp on that a bit, but if you don't celebrate with your teammates, it's a bad look. It was a worse look when Tuchel decided to start him after that. What do you think about Cancelo's future? I didn't think that Byron was going to keep him when they even mm. got him on loan with an option to buy. No, I think he's going back to command city and then they're going to sell him off and i'll just add in i'm mm. also on team sell sane but here's my <laughs> here's my idea right like because chuck chuck has heard me rail for a while about the inconsistencies mm. of Leroy sane so i'll spare him even more of that but if you can sell sane for a fee more from than what we bought him for that's great even better is if you can get Sane as a part of a swap deal for a world-class striker to a club that might need a winger and is looking to sell. Um, looking at you, Juventus. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, that's that's what I think. I don't think Bayern was ever seriously going to keep Cancelo around um, and I agree that at least selling those three wingers would be would be a good place to start. Yeah, another name that's been a hot topic, and I'll hit on this one myself, is Benjamin Pavar. I think if you're going to move to a back three, it's a no-brainer to re-sign him or assign him to an extension. But if the plan from Tuchel or whoever the coach is is to stick to a back two types or back four type system, with two center backs, I think you 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 probably have to weigh how much you really need that fourth starting caliber center back when you already have Delict, Upamecano, and Luca Hernandez. Uh, the final name I do want uh, you guys to explore, and we'll have to do it quickly, is is Thomas Muller. No, will no, he come can't. back? You can't. You can't do without Thomas Muller. You saw uh, it in the city game. Who who steps up? Yeah, not Thomas Muller. In my in my mind, I need no name. I don't think it's as much a an issue as will Byron look to sell him. I don't think they will, but will he want to be back, knowing that his role could be so inconsistent? Well, you know that he is still contracted for at least another mm -hmm. year, and he doesn't seem to show any signs of wanting to leave yet. Okay, and he's been through this song and dance routine before. He knows. He can probably outlast the coach. He knows that the coach is not going to get maybe more than four or five good games without him, right? So based on that, I expect Thomas wanted to stick around, see what happens, and then, you know, um, how should I say? Then he'll be he'll be all right, okay? Unless the board decide to sell him, I think he's going to be all right because fundamentally, you cannot change the fact that Bayern Munich play better with Thomas Muller on the pitch, and as long as that's the truth. There, uh, nothing is going to change. Mm -hmm. Jake, what do you think about that? Do you think Mueller would want to sign up for another year of of playing under Tuchel with a role that really might not be certain? Well, I mean, if the three of us are in charge, then Tuchel's not managing past <laughs> this summer. So this is really a moot point. But um, 
I think that Thomas Muller is going to stay because exactly what I Need No Name said, right? He needs to... Um, he can stay because he can outlast coaches. And he is more Bayern Munich than I think possibly anybody in the front office right now. And I do include Oliver Kahn in that list. Uh, so I think that he stays. Awesome. Well, guys, thank you for joining. This was really, it was a fun round table. I loved being able to hear your takes. Uh, it, it's been a lot of fun because this has been a, such a tumultuous period at Bayern Munich and to be able to sit here and, talk about things and how they ended up this way. In my mind, it was a, it, it was great to hear your insights because despite the fact that I often hear I need no name on our podcast and communicate with him every day, Jake, I don't get a chance to really dig down deep into Bayern Munich with you anymore. So it was awesome for that. Jake, where can our listeners find you now and how can they reach you on social media? Uh, you can find all of my work at uh, at the Daily Mail at uh, dailymail.co.uk. Um, we don't have like a separate tab for the U.S. sports section, but if you're in the U.S. and you look up that site, you'll be able to find my stuff. And then you can also find me on Twitter at jakefenner underscore. And as always, you can get me at the Barrel Blog on Twitter. You can get IND No Name at BFWINNN. You can get our site on Twitter at Bavarian FB Works. You can get Tom Adams, our tweetmeister, at TommyAdams71. He'll be jealous that he was not on this roundtable. I know Tom would have probably loved that, but the scheduling did not work out for him. Uh, as always, get all of our wonderful and talented writers and podcasters at BavarianFootballWorks.com. We will be covering the game this weekend. You will be getting continued scorching hot takes on the state of Bayern Munich. Thomas Tuchel, Thomas Muller, every Thomas you can imagine at at BavarianFootballWorks.com. Guys, I really appreciated you joining. Thanks for coming on the weekend warm-up podcast. Have a couple of beers on me, everyone. We'll see you next time.